0: It was uh, in fifth grade, I believe it was, my family moved from the city of Chicago, we were right next to Midway Airport, tired of hearing the airplanes, I think, we moved out to the suburbs of the city. My dad had really just become a Christian, up, up to that point, my mom dragged us to church as so she tried to, as we feigned sickness and everything else, I wanted to stay home with my dad, that's what men did, we stayed on, we didn't go to church. Well, then my dad became a Christian, so now men are going to church. So we're, we're looking at all these different churches in the suburbs. My dad wanted to make sure we picked the right one. And I remember the first Sunday we went to Southwest Bible Church. There were about 60 people in the uh, congregation. It was an empty shell. I think it was a new building, I think, but, but small, but tile floor and metal folding chairs. We were all kind of sitting there, and I'm, I'm thinking, this thing is losing, man. There's no way my dad's choosing this place. We're out of here. Uh but guess what church my dad chose? Uh Southwest Bible Church was to become a major major piece of my spiritual formation growing up. I- incredibly so. Uh we had I mean at our heyday I think we hit 125 and that included the people in the nursery and that was a friend day. But generally speaking it was it was uh, about 75 people we would have Sunday morning and you know, I could still see Mr. Taylor trying to to direct and then we'd come back Sunday night and they would let us kids, who thought we knew how to play brass, right? They let us play along with the hymns, which was, I can't, that must have sounded incredibly pathetic, but everybody seemed to be okay with it. Uh, We were a family, right? You're okay with these things if you're a family. Uh, We would come back Wednesday night, and after a short devotional, the guys would sit on this side, and the girls would sit on this side, and as a kid, I remember, it was just a normal thing, I'm, I'm sitting next to Archie. Uh, Archie served in World War II. Archie loved to tell me his World War II stories, and I loved to hear them. Uh, right in front of us was uh, John Slack. John was a pilot for United. Uh, a couple of other college kids. Mister Sablick was was a retired gentleman that that just always took us under his wing and always had candy for me. Uh, but behind us we had Mister Hennings. Mister Hennings was the money bags of the church, but a godly guy. And so we just we just prayed together. We had potlucks, remember the old pot we had potlucks together. we We entered in the new year together. We had talent shows or lack thereof together. I mean it was just we were a family, we really were. We all knew each other and the parents disciplined each other 's kids and, and the kids responded and respected it was We were really a, were a family, and certainly it was not a perfect place. You just want to let you know I was uh, uh, at seventeen years old. I was the Sunday school superintendent in charge of the whole Sunday school. No one else wanted to do this, right? But I was, I was naive enough to let me do this. At 18, I taught the adult Sunday school class, the only adult Sunday school class at 18. At 19, I was an elder in the church. <laughs> I realized why they put me on the board, because they wanted me to be the secretary. I didn't know what this was. You're supposed to keep notes, right? The secretary writes notes of everything that happens. My first board meeting. Uh, all these guys go at it with each other. I mean, they are standing up and calling names and, and calling and suspecting each other. I mean, it was just It was awful. It was really... Television stuff it is really awful. And I'm, I'm the secretary. I'm thinking, okay, they told me write all this down. So, so at one point there's a lull and I say, excuse me, I've got, uh, you know, how do you spell it? And they go, whoa, 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 hang on, we're writing this down. I said, but that's what you told me. I'm, no, 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 we don't write these down. So I thought, oh, this happens all the time. Anyway, it was not a perfect place. But even though it was not a perfect place, I can't tell you a group of people that God used to make a bigger indent in my soul than Southwest Bible Church. Now, when you you think of church, what comes to your mind? What memories do you have? you have some sort of memories or maybe you have bad memories? What feelings are elicited when you hear the word church? How about this one? What things things does a church need to be devoted to? Now, Now, let me just put this on the table because this is true for me, this is true for you. There are ministries that perhaps, if you've been in the church a while, you started or you served in. Or maybe there's a ministry that ministered to your spouse or brought your kids to the straight path. Whatever. There's some ministries in the church or events on the calendar or whatever else that we have emotional attachment to. And we cannot imagine church without those. It's like if one of those things goes away, it's like, ah, oh, the old church is going down in the handbasket. You know, it's, it's, it's a terrible deal. Because those are things that we think a church has to be devoted to if we're going to be a church. Well, we're doing our series on vision. We're looking at what Jesus' view of that, of that question is. And last week, we looked at his mission for the church. The last thing he left his, his disciples before he went to heaven was, B- above everything else, make disciples. That's why I'm leaving you here. That's why you're not coming with me. Make disciples. And so we recognize that's got to be top in, our, in our, our vision. That's Christ's vision for the church. But there are at least two other things, I think. in in scripture, that according to scripture, a church has to be devoted to. Matter of fact, I'd say this, unless a church is devoted to these two things, it's not really a church. There might be a sign out front. People inside might think that it's a church, but I don't think Jesus would say it's a church. And we want to look at these two elements this morning, look at our church, look at FAC, look at us personally because in many ways the church, right, it's not this building, it's not uh, committees, it's not task force, it's not boards, it's individuals, people who know Christ and so if these two things weren't individually not devoted to, then certainly the corporate group of us would not be. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning, just background, the church is born in Acts chapter 2, by the way. Uh, a bunch of uh, Jewish folk are in Jerusalem. It's where Jewish folk hang out when it's the feast of Pentecost. It's the, the feast of, of, of weeks, booths, it's, it's a harvest. It's just a huge um, um, celebration for the Jewish people. And Jesus had already died, and he rose, and he ascended, and his disciples, they're Jewish. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. They're not sure what to do, basically. And during Pentecost, God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon them. They get incredible boldness. They start doing some amazing things. And they start proclaiming to all these, these Jewish folk, you guys, you're looking for the Messiah. I'm telling you, he was here. You've heard of Jesus? Let me tell you what happened. He died. He rose. He ascended. He's coming back one day. You need to believe in him. And all these people start responding. It's an amazing thing. And then in verse 42, it starts telling us, some elements of this church. I mean, just as this, this thing's just starting to get off the ground. Verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I know, say right away, hang on, hang on, there's four things there. There's not two things. I know. We'll get, we'll get to that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm aware of that. But let's start with the apostles' teaching for a second. Again, the church at this point in, in history is like 99% Jewish people. Uh, the, the Old Testament, the Orthodox Jews, it's, it's, it's the Jews, it's their Tanakh. Uh, it's, our, it's our Old Testament. Basically all the same stuff, little arranged a little bit differently, but from beginning, from the Genesis to Malachi, the end of it, uh, God says over and over again how he's going to send his Messiah, his anointed one, and as time goes on through the Old Testament, he reveals a little bit more about his Messiah. Uh, Then one day, a baby's born. And this baby, there he's got, there's some wild stories going on about about this baby. And it's not just hearsay or it's not just from a couple of people. Lots of people are saying they saw and experienced this. People from different uh, countries even are saying they saw and experienced this. And so people are starting to wonder, what is going on? Well, this baby, of course, grows up. He, he, he starts into ministry, public ministry himself. He gets some guys around him, and he starts doing some amazing things. Now, people ask sometimes, what are the differences the world, religions, on and on. Uh, Joseph Smith, no one saw the gold tablets that make up the Book of Mormon other than Joseph Smith. Muhammad, his revelations that Gabriel gave him, Nobody was subject to other than Muhammad. Those came, came to be the writings of the Quran. Jesus, for, for just a moment. By the way, neither one of the two of the guys even claimed miracles. Jesus, for a moment. What would you do if somebody really could heal blind people? I mean, we're not talking mm, faking it stuff. I mean, really, really. What would you do if somebody really could talk to nature... And suddenly it responds. I'm not talking serendipitous stuff or watch my watch and say, okay, son, come up. We're talking really can command nature. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that get your attention? What would you do with somebody who really could? I'm, we're not talking to someone who's like in a coma and they pretend like, someone who's really dead. Brain waves are gone. And he could raise them from the dead. Wouldn't that get your attention? Wouldn't you say maybe I should listen to what this person's got to say? This is Jesus. And he taught miraculous things about about himself, about his father, about, about people, about us. He did these things. And these people that he surrounded himself with, the apostles, they wrote all of this stuff down, eyewitnesses. They wrote about him. They wrote about the early church. These writings became known as the apostles' teaching. Now, if I can just stop for just a second. This is parenthetical. Um, Some got under my skin this week, and I got to share it. Therapy time here. Um, I think it was an editorial in the paper. I, I, I'm, it was an editorial in the paper. I'm not, I'm not sure the date, um, but it's, it was an editorial that, that really called into question the historicity of Christ. I mean, it just said there's no place where Jesus. They said historical fact, you know, based on research. There's no place in the secular world where the name Jesus is mentioned or Jesus is talked about. The people who wrote it were not eyewitnesses, and on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, we've pr- talked about this before, we'll talk about it again, but just, just so you know, that really is a bunch of malarkey. Um, Jesus Christ is mentioned in ten secular, non-Christian sources around his life. Tiberius Caesar, this, the ruling emperor at that point, is only mentioned in nine of them. Uh, Jesus, if you take his friends who wrote about him, He outnumbers, in in sources, 43 to 1, Caesar. No one questions whether Tiberius Caesar was there. But Jesus, ah, no no reason to, but but we we certainly do. Um, Look at at this quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, these independent accounts talking about those secular sources, Encyclopedia Britannica talking about the secular sources that address Jesus, prove that in ancient times even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 18th, during the 19th, and at the beginning of the 20th century. You can check that out online. Uh, F.F. Bruce, uh, manuscript uh, historian, uh, worldwide authority, says this. He says, some writers may toy with the fancy of a Christ myth, but they do not do so on the ground of historical evidence. The historicity of Christ is as axiomatic for an unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. It is not historians who propagate the Christ myth theories. And we can go on and on and on, but but just so you know, when you read that stuff, it would be similar to reading something written by the president of Iran who says the Holocaust never happened. Is his, is his understanding of the Holocaust never happening, is it really based on unbiased historical research? Or is it based on some other motivation? Just because somebody may write something does not mean that it's researched or it's historically accurate. Okay, I got that out of my system. I feel much much better. Okay. So these guys wrote... About Jesus, the apostles' teaching. Now this does not this is this is our New Testament. This does not mean the Old Testament is dissed, because in the Apostles' teaching, the Apostles advocate the Old Testament. Just so you know, Second Peter one, twenty and twenty-one, second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, they're for the Old Testament. But the Apostles' teaching is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the completion of it. All the promises made, it's the completion of it. And the early church was devoted to these. Now, you've got to keep in mind, these guys were not devoted to the apostles' teaching because they were, you know, egghead grad students just trying to get some information because they're going to get out and get a job and they had to be prepared. These folk were devoted, tenaciously holding to mission critical, the apostles' teaching because some of them knew Jesus. Because these were love letters to them. They, they wanted to know him better. They wanted to understand him more. They wanted to know what he had for them. First uh, Peter. It says, Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk, or spiritual milk of the word. That's what Peter's referring to. So that you might grow. Now, if you've got babies, do you have any experience with babies? Then my guess is, I can't remember when I was one, I'm guessing I was one, but I can't remember this, but when they crave milk, they probably are not saying, you know, I really am not hungry for this stuff. milk again, but it does help me grow, it makes my body strong, so give me some of that milk. They're probably not thinking that. Their, their, their t- belly's going off. And they are thirsting for it. They are longing for it. Now, are they, is it going to help them grow? Absolutely. Are they thinking about that? I don't know. If, if The important thing for us is sometimes we just want to be in God's word. You know, I really don't want to be here. But it's going to help me grow. Well, I'm not so sure it is at that point. You, you, you've met a new believer. Have you seen this? Brand new believer. And where what's their view of, of Scripture at that point? They can't get enough of it. They're listening to podcasts and internet, and they're all reading books, and they're all over it because they can't get enough of the Word of God. The early church was committed, devoted to, tenaciously holding to the Word of God. If you're a church or a church building, and the Word of God is marginalized, or sidelined, or watered down, or compromised, I believe in Christ's mind, you're really not a church. That's why we, we want to. This is continue in the history of being devoted to the word the word of God. Second thing they're devoted to, though, they're devoted to, I think your scripture's going to say, fellowship. That's what mine says, fellowship. It's not a bad translation, really, but it's not the, the cleanest. It's not the clearest. This is what the word means. Koinonia is the word. And it means to share in common with, or to share because of commonality. These guys were devoted to... Committed to togetherness. That's what it refers to. If we look at verse 44, that's what it's pointing out. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. It doesn't mean they lived in a commune. It means that because of their relationship with Christ, there's a bond that's stronger than family. And because of that commonality, they shared life together. This This is not a word that we can do with pagan folk. Folk who don't know Christ, we might have things in common, hobbies. whatever. That's wonderful. Hang with them. It's great. But that's not going to reflect this word. The Fellowship is not just hanging, doing some coffee. Fellowship is because of my faith in Christ, recognizing that we have all things in common. We do life together. Think Genesis chapter 2. This is an interesting story if you think back from the beginning. Because God creates Adam God, God has created the whole world. Adam, if you think about it, has got a perfect relationship with God, much better than you and I could ever dream to have this side of glory. Adam has got a perfect relationship with God. Adam has got a perfect relationship with his environment. The rainforest and on the way out, there's no crazy viruses, he doesn't need a flu shot, there's no, no, no insurance issues he's got to worry about. It's the perfect environment. world is perfect, perfect, perfect. But God looks at this perfect world, this perfect man, his perfect relationship with him, and God says, something's wrong with this picture. Isn't this amazing? I mean Now, this was going to sound heretical, and, and please understand what I'm saying. I've battled with this line back and forth for the longest time. But God is looking at Adam here, saying, uh, relationship with me, it's not enough. Now, this is huge, because as people... I like being with God. See, God is forgiving and grace-giving and kind and nice and loving. But see, people, oh, man, it's another story. And God doesn't have any baggage. And God doesn't have any problems. And, and I, God can have expectations of me and I can blow them off. And God's forgiving and kind. Remember, we talked about that. But see, people. No, see, so I like to build my relationship with God. But see, people. And God says, oh, relationship with me, without relationship with others, it's not good. It's not good. And the reason why God says it's not good here is not because mankind needed to produce and and fill the world with offspring. Godly offspring is part of God's plan, but that's not the key reason. The reason is not to satisfy uh, Adam's thirst for intimacy. That's not the reason, though. Sexuality is certainly part of God's creative order, but the reason is because He's alone. It's a companionship. God meant from the beginning, life to be shared together. And the early church, and this is amazing, when we think about church, we don't always think about that. We think about this. We think about the first church of, you know, maybe the Warner. You know, really, that would de- determines where we go to church, is who does the best show going on. You know, you're going to get done on time, you're going to start on time, you know. is it got the best thing going on? Are you going to play with my emotions a little bit? Not a whole lot, but not have a lot of expectations on I me. Mean, what goes on here? See, so I'm going to come check it out, then I'll go home and I'll come back next week and check it out again and play Siskel and Ebert while I'm, while I'm away. Yeah, the church, first church of, of of the Warner, maybe the first church of Walgreens, you know, where I come because I need a booster shot, man, because life is hard and it's just hard and I'm getting beat up a little bit and so give me a booster shot, maybe give me a little solve for my issues and problems and then I'll go through the whole week and then I'll come back and get a little bit more next week, first church of Walgreens. Now, let me mention something because I don't want to offend anyone on this point because I know FAC's history has been, and I've I've met some folk even very recently who are here to heal. They are here to be anonymous, to be still and quiet and check things out and reconnect with God. Please, please, this is for you. That's good. That's right. But at some point, it has to shift to a commitment a devotion to togetherness i understand people hurt i've hurt many and i've been hurt but it's a commitment to togetherness this is why in the new testament it's fascinating for the most part the church was a small group home churches i mean you did not meet in a big you didn't meet in a big place like this until like 300 something until that point you met in homes home groups were not a, an option it was not an alternative it was the church and the vast majority of them were very small, and that's why when we read in Scripture, you read about the, the house of um, the house of Priscilla and Aquila, the house that met in the, the community that met in the house of uh, Justius or Titus Justin, the house that met in the, the church that met in the house of Jason, the church that met in the house of the, the Philippian jailer. You, you read about the house of Cornelius, and of course the people that met there and what happened with that. Uh, house churches was what it was about. You didn't have a big gathering, except for maybe the church in Jerusalem. That, that would, maybe they would go to the temple on occasion, probably for evangelistic reasons. But most of the Roman world did not have that. That's why New Testament authors are saying, greet the church that meets in the house of Aristobulus. Greet the church that meets in the house of Nympha. Greet the church that meets in the house of Narcissus. Meet the, Greet the church that meets in the heart, house of Priscilla and Aquila. Because the house church, that's just the way it was. That's how they did church. The big thing, again, it didn't happen until Constantine, who was the Roman emperor in about 300. He became a Christian. And so he legalized Christianity. Started using government funds to start building cathedrals and, and buildings, churches, church buildings. And if you wanted to get, go up in the po- political spectrum, you wanted to climb the political ladder, and, and the the main guy, the Caesar was a Christian, you better become one too. And so there was an influx of folk who decided, just suddenly decided, well, I guess I'll be a Christian too. And then the guy after Constantine, his name was Theodosius, he said, not only is Christianity legal, it is the only religion that's legal we will kill everybody else that was the same. so you can imagine everybody decides to be a christian well being a christian is not such a bad idea sure i'll do it too and so every so the government is building all these big buildings and they're filling up and the house churches are emptying into the big big buildings now i don't believe that big groups are unbiblical. I, you can't find that i think matter of fact i can find you some examples uh that isn't the issue but we can't lose the devotion to togetherness, that which, which that living life together. Um, when you talk in scripture about heaven, it's called a city, and a city is high population area. It's relationship. Meanwhile opposite side hell is talked about as a place of being alone i know a lot of people say i want to go to hell because my friends are there when well, they may be but you're not going to see them because hell is spoken of a place of total utter darkness you're alone in heaven though can you imagine pure relationships never any misexpectations expectations or misunderstandings or confusions or wrong motivations. this is going to be a pretty nice place looking forward to it uh Heaven, heaven and hell are contrast in this idea of relationships, this idea that God has called you and I to be devoted to togetherness is what eternity will be, and it's what it's supposed to be down here. Now, reason why we don't, key reason, number one reason why people don't join a small group, I know what it is, it's not because we're busy, we're busy people, but that's not the reason, it's because of high-maintenance folk. You know what I'm saying? It's There's some people, you know, they just kill the group, and they just make me struggle, and I don't... Those are, those are the reasons. But if you stop for just a second and look at Jesus' small group, okay? he, he, Jesus wanted to change the world. He didn't start a university. He didn't start a foundation. He started a small group. And the guys he picked, you look at the guys he picked and you say, man, Jesus must have had to choose last. All the good disciples were gone when it came around to Jesus' turn, man. Because look, he's got Peter in there. He's a loud guy. He's got he's got he got the brothers James and John, they're, they're they're sons of thunder. They got an anger problem. He got a doubter, doubter doubting Thomas. He's got Philip who's a cynic. He's got Bartholomew and Thaddeus who are wallflower people. He's got Simon the, the zealot who hates tax gatherers, and then Jesus, for whatever reason, picks Matthew who's a tax gatherer who hates zealots. Don't you know they had some great conversations going on in their small group. And you look at this and you go, oh, the dysfunction. Who wants to be? Would you sign up for Jesus' small group? If you just saw the people in it, you would say, no way. I'm not being a part of that thing. Talk about high maintenance. But at the end of those three years, other than the Judas Iscariot guy, they were all transformed. Somehow, God uses the mess Thing that we want to avoid to transform us. I can't tell you why Southwest didn't have the greatest teaching, didn't have the greatest music, didn't have the greatest anything. Uh, had some key issues. But folk who love the Lord, God used in my life in a major, major, major way. There's that devotion to togetherness. Are you devoted to togetherness? That's a huge question. I, I had some folk, not here, <clears throat> different church. They, they made an appointment to talk to the pastor, talk to me. And just so you all know, this is how we do it, in case you make an appointment to talk to the pastor, just so you know this is what we do. Uh, I talk to the secretary, they run the name through the database, they give you all the information on the person, here's everything about them. Okay, got it. So you have some idea who's coming to talk to you, you know, some crazy person or what, you got, you got this all figured out. <laughs> so these people made an appointment to talk to me, we ran, tried to run them through the database, they're empty, there's nothing, there's nothing on these people, so I'm thinking, maybe these guys are brand new. They haven't come to church here, whatever else, because we push hard to get their info right away. And they sit down. I said, man, we ran you through the database and there's nothing on you. You're new here. And they said, oh, no, we've been coming here about seven years. I said, seven years? Man, we don't have any of your information, so I'm getting my pencil and stuff. And they're saying, no, 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 you don't have any of our information and you're not going to get any of our information because we like the idea of kind of walking in a few minutes late, leaving a few minutes early, no one's pushing us to serve or sign up for anything, and we kind of like that. And you say, well, okay, I guess, I guess. I'm not sure it's okay with God, but okay, come. But there's a devotion to togetherness. That characterized the early church. That characterizes his body. There's one body, and that's what we're that's what we're that's what we're called to. You know, when uh, uh, I was back in, in Appleton. Uh, my wife had this great idea that we should join a small group. I've been in small groups often on my, my, my most most of my life, and again, I don't think it has to take a specific form. It's just a commitment to togetherness, doing life together, serving together. And so, okay, so she she made plans and she took the bull by the horns, bless her. And I kind of dragged my feet, uh, and and so we some of the couples we knew, some not not as well. Uh, and so I did. I'm a typical man. I don't want to go and share my feelings and talk about all those wonderful things for crying out loud. So the day of small group, you know, you're going, you get a headache and you're feeling sick. And there's 30,000 reasons why you can't go. And you know, you keep, you know, you know, go anyway because you want to keep peace at home. And so all the way over, you're going, what have I done for crying out loud? Oh, man. And you go there and you put on the happy face. And hi, everybody. And you leave. And you go, yeah, it wasn't so bad. But you know what happens next week, right? Exact. Same thing. Oh, man, we got to do this again. Somewhere after about, I'm guessing, a year. I don't know exactly when it happened. But I remember being conscious of the fact, driving over, that I wasn't complaining and that I was looking forward to it. And somewhere along the line, too, the, the, the guys, one of them suggested that, you know what, we need to take this deeper. We need to get together just as guys without the women. Hold each other accountable. And, you know, all the, all the guys' eyebrows go, oh, what is this about? So we, we, we decided, okay, let's get together, do breakfast once a month. So we got together at some uh, restaurant, and uh, everyone's nervous. We're all kind of shaking. We're, what's going on? Someone puts the question on the table. Pretty intimate question. We kind of <clears throat> swallowed hard, went around, answered. It was okay. Prayed for each other, ate went left. We did that the following month. And the question came up following month, following month, and I, 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 I got, I got to tell y'all, that was the hardest thing other than not wanting to hurt my family. And y'all know if, what I'm talking about if you've moved. Uh, that was the hardest thing about moving, leaving, because those guys became—I don't know when or how, necessarily—but they came best friends. They were—I had had friends like that since I was a kid. They knew everything about me. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, you've got to kind of put your guard because you're not sure if you tick somebody off, they're going to use it. You're in all kinds of trouble, right? They knew everything about me. And I knew everything about them. And we had laughed and cried and prayed. There was real togetherness over faith. And if you miss, I kept thinking too, if you miss that not clicking in because you're too nervous or you don't like it, oh, man, I could have missed this. What, what, a, what a sad, sad situation. Now, if you're following the text, <clears throat> again, here's, you, it says there's four things they were devoted to, and I said there's only two. This is where I'm coming from with that. Uh, ben the third, he is a beast of a scholar. He is one of the primary New Testament, Lucan books of Luke, uh, Acts and the book of Luke, scholars. His commentary on the book of Acts is one of the most sought after in evangelical circles. Wetherington says this. And he's not alone. He's quoting, he quotes some other scholars. He says that the early church was probably here, the way that everything sets up, devoted to two things. The apostles' teaching and fellowship. And the other two, breaking of bread and prayer, are subgroups of fellowship. And this is fascinating if, if you think about This. The breaking of bread, because Luke was a very, very precise scholar. I mean, of all the guys who wrote the New Testament, his language, very, very precise. You always knew exactly what he was thinking. But here there's some ambiguity. And you go, what's with the ambiguity? I think it was intentional. This breaking of bread can mean one of two things. I think it means both here. It can mean, we would think, oh, it means communion. It's the Lord's Supper. And it certainly can mean that. And if you think about these folk, they came together. They came to remember the Lord. A lot of their families had ostracized them because they were Jewish and they're deciding to follow Jesus, claim him to be the Messiah. They came together. You know, it's... Uh, when I was... Before I was sick, I used to serve communion all the time. If you notice, I don't, I don't serve it. One of the reasons I don't is because I, I shake sometimes. And the poor guys will probably wear it more than they would uh, be able to, to drink it or serve it. But one of the things I enjoyed, I really enjoyed, is when you'd pass the tray down the aisle... You could watch the different people taking, partaking. You have students, you would have different races, you have different socioeconomic groups, different people from different issues. And, and it, was, it was fascinating to watch the, the incredible diversity in the body of Christ. All who, through taking communion, were claiming that they had committed their life to Christ, that He had saved them, and to see the incredible uh, diversity in the body of Christ. These guys came to remember Christ, but to remember their bond as family now, so much stronger than simply blood. You know, there is a whole list of um, commands in Scripture that you cannot do if you are not a part of a small group. Do you know that? There's, of course, accept one another. There's forgive one another. You really can't forgive anyone unless you get close enough to let them offend you, right? You can't, can't, can't do that. There's love one another. And as you realize, love is not a superficial thing. Those that you would say love you are probably those that know you the best. Love is found in a relationship of depth. There's show hospitality to one another. There's instruct one another. There's bear with one another. There's weep with one another. There's confess what your sins to one another. we going to do that here Sunday morning? Everyone stand up and confess your sins to each other. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, I'm not doing that. Uh, that's, those are small group things. There's a set of commands in Scripture. You can't, you can't adequately obey in a context of a large group. Early church is devoted to togetherness. Now, here's some, uh, breaking of bread was was referring to communion. I think also the, the terminology very clearly can be pointing at secular just eating together. If you take this in light of Revelation 3.20, remember Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. Because eating together was a sign of deep, deep intimacy. It It was saying, man, I've got your back. We are family now. We are together now. We're like blood brothers now. Nothing can separate us now. These guys did life together. Just like the apostles, cried, confused, prayed, learned, ministered, they did life together. Also, the term of, fourth thing that's listed here anyway, is prayer. Now, if you were ever in a small group and you've had this experience, I'm about to relate, you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you've sat down with some people, not, it's not a superficial small group, it's not a small group, we're just learning each other. You've been together for a while. When you start to share prayer requests... Man, you can start confessing your sins to one another. You share about your kids or your health or your future or your family. Or, and the tears start to flow. And together, your brothers and sisters, those guys who are in that small group, begin to lift up your request to God. And they're, they're emotionally involved as well. Man, all kinds of one another's are being knocked out right there. Is that not what prayer is, is supposed to be? Now, we, we do pray individually. And we should. We should. But corporate prayer, bring it, that's how we support one another. That's how we support one another in the commonality of our faith with Christ. We bring these things. We bring life that we're doing together, family issues and all, the, all these issues, to his throne together. Ah, that's being connected to each other. Now, if you take your Get Connected card, I think the one that I asked you not to put in the offering plate, This is how this is, little application here. Starting in February, I mentioned that we're going to start a series that hopefully is honoring the uh, apostles' uh, teaching. It's on the um, uh, Word of God. It's called Scripture Twisting. Now, this is, let me give you just a real brief background on this. Uh, We need to be committed to the Word of God, but the Word of God is not always easy to interpret, is it? Uh, it it can be a challenge Uh, can you go back I'm sorry PowerPoint person I I have messed you up a little bit to um, Mark 11 I think I know the words are so small there you can't even see it Uh, is it possible beautiful thank you so much Uh, therefore I tell you whatever you ask for in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours clear enough right easy enough that's what scripture says. You believe it, pray, it's yours. If you don't get it, guess whose fault it is? that you didn't have enough faith, right? Do you believe that? Go back one. Can you back one? There we go. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Now, one of two things are true. Either, A, you're not a believer, or let's pass around, you know, a gallon of Drano. Everyone take a slug, and then we'll see who's really a believer. Or maybe we need to interpret that verse. Now, um, 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's two the other direction. I, I, boy, boy, you you need a raise. Um <laughs> Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? What do you do with this? The Mormon Church knows what you do with this, but what do we do with this? This requires a degree of interpretation. There are you, do, you know you don't have to have a license to get a web page up. You know that you don't have to have a license to write a book if a publisher thinks it's going to sell. It's, gonna, it's published. You do not have to have a license in order to, to tell your friend. You know what? Here's something I've got out of God's word. Now, here's the issue. Uh, how do we know if that televangelist, if that guy on the radio, if that person in the book, if someone even passed her up front, how do I really know if they're interpreting Scripture properly? Maybe they're not interpreting it right. You know, there are over 2,000 denominations, Protestant denominations in the United States. You know why? Mostly because of interpretive issues. How do you know who's interpreting it right? Starting in February, we're going to start a series in here. I'm excited about this. It's not like one we've ever done before called Scripture Twisting, where we are going to review about six weeks, five principles for scripture interpretation. There are several others. But I'll tell you what, if you can get these five down, uh, and I can guarantee you it's going to rattle some cages. It's going to, it's going to be a, a good s- series. But then what we want to do is this, because we can only go so far on Sunday morning, is we want... To people to be broken into small groups, our life groups will be starting again, corresponding with that series, and they will meet Sunday evening or whatever sometime during the week and take that principle and take it to scripture and take it deeper yet. And the goal is to, to understand these, these principles of scripture interpretation deeper on a deeper level as well as to bond together. We try to kill two birds with one stone, as it were. So we want folk to sign up for a scripture-twisting life group. And we've got to be careful with the name. Folk will misunderstand that, I know. But a, a, a life group beginning in February. Now, what we're going to try to do is we're going to encourage these life groups beginning in February for those next six weeks to meet weekly. And I know, we're going, oh, weekly, oh no! We're going, to, we're going to try it for those six weeks. Then after that... You're out. You don't have to be in the small group anymore. Or or if you kind of like these people, you might want to say, well, let's keep going. Let's try. But maybe can we go to every other week? That's something you and your small group can decide and work through. But starting in February, we're going to start a series of small groups that will meet weekly that will take what we go on Sunday morning, what we go over on Sunday morning, and drive it deeper. And so what I want to encourage you to do is take that little connection card right now. And if you look on the back of it, it talks about life groups and sign your name on it, and then check which of those days work. Now that's it's non-committal; it's not co- committing you in somewhere. It's not a life sentence. Uh, someone will call you, is what this will do, and and allow you to process this a little bit further. Um, I would encourage you strongly to to be a part of that. I think this what we're going to be going over it can be can be game change stuff, life change stuff, the scripture twisting stuff. Um, let me. Uh share with you the story real quick as, as we wrap up. By the way, you finish your card, you're on your card, just leave the cart on the pew on the way out. Someone will pick them up. If for whatever reason you've got to talk about it on the way home or something, I understand that. There will be official sign-ups next week as well. Pastor Dre has already done a ton of work on this, though, and so it's just getting some names so we can start working. Back in uh, uh, where I was in Wisconsin, I think I've shared this before in here, there was a, a small group. they have been around for uh, uh, several years. Together. Well, one of the men was shooting across the ice one winter with his daughter in tow on his ATV, fell through the ice. Uh, somehow, I don't know how this happened, he got catapulted out back onto the ice. His daughter went in the water. He jumped in after his daughter. Of course, he got his, and you can imagine the ice is so thin, every time he tries to put her up, it keeps breaking. Finally, he's able to get her up after quite a struggle, but he went down and he didn't come back up. Within a couple of hours, their small group was at the hospital. Now, this, this, this man ha- had a business, but he never talked business with his wife. She had no clue what they had, what they didn't have. There were uh, He had no insurance. Uh, luckily, in the small group, there were a couple of men who were business guys. They said, let us look at his books, his assets, his liability, all those things, and we'll counsel you on what you need to do. And, and they helped her, took a couple of years I think, helped her figure out what she needed to do to liquidate and be safe and take care of her and her family. Uh, the two daughters that he left, a couple of the guys in the group, um, God had moved in their heart, they were basically surrogate fathers. They, I remember they took them to a father-daughter banquet where actually one of the girls got, got to share. And I think through, what would have happened to that family if they weren't connected, if they weren't in a small group? Well, probably the congregational care guy would have showed up and probably they got some cards and there would have been a funeral. And that's probably about it. I think there's a reason why God says you need to be devoted to togetherness because life is too big to do by yourself. You need to do it in the context, in the worldview, and the understanding of, of faith, of relationship with Christ. So let me ask you, please, for you, for me, this year, we, we're still moving into 2013. Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching, the word of God? Does your schedule reflect that? Are you devoted to togetherness? Or are you just too busy or too nervous or too afraid? Someone will find something out or too uh, arrogant. I don't want to mess with anybody else's issues.